chapter 3 this morning. It'll be good to get back into our series through 1 Corinthians. And as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read the chapter together. It says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And as I was just kneeling before you in prayer this morning for, for the people that would be drawn here, you just, you just ministered to my heart that the people that are here today are to hear this message. Lord, to those that are, are gone and out and about, Lord, just you've got them where you've got them today. But Lord, those that you've drawn here, Lord, sovereignly you've brought them and by your grace you've brought them to encourage them, to comfort them, to edify them and lift them up, to correct them, to maybe even rebuke them, Lord. Lord, for those that have come to this place and they are not yet saved, they're not yet born again. They are still dead in their sins. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just gently come and minister to them their deep need for a Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for 1 Corinthians. We thank you that uh, it's profitable for doctrine and for correction and reproof and for training in righteousness, Lord, to equip us for the work you've got for us. So do it today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> Well, the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has encouraged those in Corinth not to rely upon man's wisdom or the wisdom of this world, and not to rely upon the strength of men. See, men's wisdom is temporal. Uh, it's material. It looks at the here and now. It doesn't look to the eternal things. It doesn't look to what's going to glorify God. It doesn't look to what's going to build up my brother or my sister. What's going to be a picture of Jesus in this situation? And so in the first two chapters, Paul just contrasts for, for two chapters the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom, humanism and Godism. For two chapters, he just warns us and encourages us, man, don't go to the system of the world. 
If you're going to go out there and you're going to try to save souls and, and minister the kingdom to people, don't rely upon flesh. Don't reply, rely upon worldly wisdom. But rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, where Paul was when he was ministering to the Corinthians, it was an area of Greece. It was an area near Athens. It was an area that really relied heavily upon philosophy, and every man wanted to hear or speak about some new thing. And so a lot of Paul's contemporaries would say, Paul, why don't you talk like a Grecian? Why don't you talk like someone who was you know, raised in Athens? Then you'll really save people. And he said, you know what? I've determined when I come to the Corinthians, I'm not going to come with wisdom of the world or smooth speech or persuasive talk because then the cross of Christ would be made of no effect. But when I come, I want to come and I came in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. And so for two chapters, Paul goes along that theme and we see that the heart for God's harvest, the heart for the kingdom to be expanded through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to correct the Corinthians. And that's something we see a lot in this book. In fact, later on, Paul's going to say, Corinthians, should I come to you with a rod? Should I come to you with the spank spoon? You know, man, it just seems like you guys just need a lot of correction. And so Paul begins to do that. And you, you might have caught that as we first read this morning. He, he corrects them on their carnality. He corrects them on their operating according to their flesh and according to what they see and what feels good and what sounds good rather than uh, truth and going into maturity rather than letting themselves be conformed to the word of God. The Corinthians were a church that was a carnal church. In fact, that's really the main theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is carnal Christianity. Christianity that just goes about and does what feels good. And we know that from the entirety of the New Testament, that is no form of Christianity at all. The Corinthians had become quarrelsome with one another and envious of one another. In fact, fervently hot and oily in their, in their fighting with one another, in their bitterness to one another. Can you imagine that going on within a church? Some of you have seen that. I praise God. That's not happening here. That's not happening now. In fact, just the opposite is going on. We have got some radical brotherly, sisterly love going on in this place. And that is all by the grace of God. John Calvin said, from envying springs up contentions. And these, when they've once been enkindled, break out into deadly sects. And that's exactly what had happened in Corinth. As they were bitter towards one another and envying one another and walking in carnality. And really, as James tells us, just seeking their own selfish gain and selfish ambitions. They began to split into various parties within the church. Not walking in the spirit, but becoming worldly and polarizing themselves into different spectrums. And Paul says in verse 4, when one says, hey, over here, I'm of Paul. I'm in the Paul clique. And another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Are you not being sinful? Are you not being fleshly? One man said, Corinth's worship services looked like the toddler's class. That kids fight over trivia, trivial, selfish stuff. And we've all seen it on the playground. Hey, my dad's stronger than your dad. My dad makes more money than your dad. My dad's more distinguished than your dad. That's not, those weren't ever in, in my arguments. <laughs> my dad can whoop your dad, you know. That was a little more along those lines. But that was the situation within the Corinthian church. My teacher, my preacher is better than your teacher or preacher. And, and in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and this is one of those easy flips, like 1 Corinthians 1. Okay, just go over like one or two pages. In verses 11 through 13, Paul said that it had been declared to him concerning the church by those of Chloe's household that there were contentions among them. Verse 12 says, now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or Peter, or I'm of Christ. You got to love that little click, like, well, we're not of any of you, we're of Christ. And, and even there, there was like pride in that. There was a selfishness, there was carnality in the way that they were uh, polarizing themselves. Paul says, hey, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of of Paul, 
John Calvin said, each one gloried in his particular master as though Christ were not the master of them all. Go into their favorite pastors and polarizing themselves there. And that's why Calvary Chapel has tried over the last 40 years to be deliberately non-denominational. And in a way, it's kind of morphed into its own denomination, but really we've, we've tried to not be prideful. And, and in, all, in all, you know, wherever there are men, there are fallible men, right? And we can creep into that, but we've really tried to preach. You go to the Calvary Chapel pastors' conferences, and, and we want to humble ourselves every time we're together, to not be prideful in this quote-unquote denomination. But rather, we want to label ourselves as Christians. I was talking to my neighbor's friend yesterday who was watering his, his yard, and I, I just said, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm Rory, and I love Jesus. And I just said it to him. I said, and this is Russell, and he loves Jesus. And I didn't, you know, and, and I am of the Calvary Chapel, you know, no, I just got to talk to him about Jesus. I found out he was a Christian too. We talked about Christ. We didn't morph over into our little categories and then shoot arrows at each other across the fence. No, we talked about Jesus. We remembered that he's the one to be central. And it's such a good warning to us as Christians that when we emphasize any other tag or distinctive or association, it diminishes the importance of our connection to Christ. All of a sudden, Jesus gets pushed to the back burner and men get pushed to the forefront. And we as elders, we really strive against that. We really try to not just push Calvary Chapel's agenda or Calvary Chapel, Calvary, get the dove out there. Anywhere you can get a dove, let's throw a bird on it, you know. <laughs> we're Calvary Chapel, but we don't run around calling ourselves that. First and foremost, we're followers of Jesus. Speaking of denominations, do you know how many Southern Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? <laughs> At last count, 16 million, but no one can agree if it needs changing. How many Mennonites does it take to change a light bulb? Eventually about five, but they can't get uh, along fine without it. They can get along fine without it. Blew that one, sorry. How many, how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to do it, one to bless it, and one to pour the sherry. How many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Eleven. One to change it and ten to organize the support that follows. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Lee, I'm sorry, man. I know that you're Mennonite. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Light bulb? What's a light bulb? No. How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries to do it, the light won't come on. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but let's not offend anybody by the change. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Don't worry, Calvary's going to get is in a second. Nine, one to change it, and eight to sell raffle tickets for the old one. How many Charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Five, one to unscrew it, two to catch it when it falls to the ground, and two to bind the spirit of darkness. <laughs> and finally, how many Calvary Chapel guys does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but it'll show up a half hour late. <laughs> All right. Sorry, that was in pink. It was a little hard to read. All right. Yeah. You know, every church... Every church that is his church has its own flavor and style in the universal church spectrum. And that is great. God creates a wide variety and array of churches to reach a wide variety of people. What is wrong is when people and churches accentuate their differences as if they are better than others. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, just nine chapters are actually where we're at, seven chapters over to the right. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. 
And so within Calvary, here at this church, you know, we, when we boast, we want to boast in what Jesus has done here. We want to give God the glory within this sphere that we can say, look what God has done. Look at the heritage we have, praise God, but look at what the Holy Spirit's been doing here. I don't want to be nitpicky about them over there or them over there, unless there's major heretical doctrinal things that are going on that, that need to be called out. Man, we want to see what Jesus is doing here and give him the glory for it. So that's what it's all about. We need cooperation and not competition. Despite many different churches, we're all one body. In verse 5, Paul says, Who is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? He says, don't get excited about the messenger. It's the Lord Jesus who died to save us, not the messenger. Praise God, the messenger was obedient to deliver the message. But the Lord equipped him. The Lord sent him. And the Lord was the one that softened your heart the day you were saved. It's the Lord himself, not his messenger, that's responsible for you being saved. Charles Hodge says the doctrines that they preach are not of their own discoveries. And the power that makes their preaching successful is not in them. They are nothing. And therefore, it is an entire perversion of their relationship to the church to make them party leaders. And I'll tell you what, in studying this, I myself was convicted. Because we all have heroes, right? We all have people that have preached the gospel or people that ministries we were saved under. And we put them on a pedestal and we look at them and we say, man, look what they did. Somehow they just paved the road, you know, plowed the road and paved the road and made it happen. And they just, they really did it, didn't they? It's important to remember, no, man, there was nothing new by the time they came on the scene. They just were just vessels that the Holy Spirit saved and worked through and ministered to so that they could go and save and minister to people and then so on and so forth, paying it forward in a sense. These people, and you think of who they are in your life, these pastors, these ministers, these missionaries, they are through whom you believed and not on whom you believed. They're not the Christ. They're not the Savior. And you know what? When you start putting them up there and putting them up there, and now all of a sudden they're like, they could do no wrong, guess what? They're men. They're going to fail you. They're going to stumble. And when they do you wrong, it's going to hurt. It's going to seem as if your world has collapsed. No, now, I am not the Christ. I'm just a man. I'm just a tool. I'm just a vessel. What's the use of fighting which of two nothings is greater? Paul or Paulus? They're both nothing. In fact, I'm not trying to be mean. Like Paul's nothing. Paul's going to use that language here. I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. No man ought to be gloried in, but Christ alone. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We see this illustration here of a farmer a hired man, one planting, one watering. In Mark chapter 4, verse 3, go ahead and flip over there. It's to the left. It's the second book in the New Testament, following Matthew. Mark chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus tells a parable, and it was cool. My kids and I read this this week in our, uh, just a little time in the scriptures, and I got on the computer and I put up pictures on one screen and, and as they're able to look at these pictures as we read through. It's a great way to teach your kids. In Mark chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. This is speaking of a farmer, not a seamstress. A farmer goes out to sow seed. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and it yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. And that's when Russell goes, everybody has ears. And I go, that's what Jesus is saying. Listen up. He said, don't you understand the parable? In verse 13. 
How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Okay, so in this picture that Jesus has given us, the farmer is either the preacher or the evangelist or you in your workplace leading a discipleship group or just sharing the gospel with somebody. You're putting the word of God out there. And there are ones, there are some of the seed by the wayside where the word is sown. Or the, they are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown in verse 15. And when they hear the word, Satan comes and immediately swoops down and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. And we've all seen this. Many of us have seen this as you share the gospel. Just, man, if there was anything, it was gone before you knew it. If there was any spark or glimmer, it was gone before you knew it. The enemy came and stole it away. Very similar to that, some of the seed falls on stony ground. And these are people. People who, verse 16 says, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves. And so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, enters in and chokes the word. And it becomes unfruitful. You know, if you're in this room this morning, I want you to ask, where's the seed fallen right now in your life? You know, are, are you a recent convert to Christianity? And as the word has gone in, just, man, you think about it and you're just like, man, the day that guy preached to me or talked to me, I was just like, woohoo, that's what I needed to hear. That's, that's it. And that was like yesterday or two days ago or maybe a week ago, right? And now already you're like, oh man, like people are looking at me funny. I don't want anything to do with this. Then I would say, just a word of caution, perhaps you're a seed that has fallen on stony ground and I, and I would just say man let's, let's pray right now pray in your heart lord like walk over and kind of kick me over into some good soil i don't want to be the one that's already being distracted and already be being you know persecuted a little bit so i'm done with you god he says that there's a seed that fell in thorny ground and just think about that you know and we've all seen it right in these agricultural areas and the thorns just come and they just choke out that seed. And, and Jesus is so particular. It's like a word of knowledge from him. That the cares of this world are those thorns. Cares of this world and the desire of riches and just being popular and, and ambitious. And, and all of those things that you're living for cannot coexist with the seed. Jesus himself says you can't serve God in mammon or money. And if that's what you're going to go serve, man, you're the seed that's being choked out right now. And when I would go to Brazil, I would preach the gospel in a city street and, and hundreds of people would be around and many would respond to the gospel by lifting up their hand and with tears and with what appears to be a broken heart. And I would say, okay, right now I want you who've raised your hands, I want you to meet me over here in front of this coffee shop. And I want to tell you something, and we'd all go over there, and I'd talk to them about the need of, of pressing in as a disciple, and I'd talk to them about the seed that was sown in their hearts that day. And I said, some of you here, by next weekend, you won't even remember what happened here in this, in this city square. And I pray right now that the seed will have fallen on soft hearts, because we read there that there is a group in verse 20 where the seed fell on good ground, they heard the word, they accepted it, and they bore fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. And it is regularly at this church, at the Thursday night prayer meeting, where we pray ahead for Sunday morning's time here, and we pray that the Lord God would cultivate the hearts of men and women. You know, just as, you know, nowadays, man, we've got the giant, you know, tractors with, you know, dualies and, and, you know, they're pulling these massive plows and they just, you know, and there's all these different processes, you know, beginning with just ripping the earth up from like three feet under, just, you know, and you do that to a whole field and you need a very powerful tractor. You know, and then you go over it again and you disc it and you just over and over until pretty soon it's just this fine, beautiful... You know, a little butterfly flutters by like, plant the grass. And you're like, we'll do that, you know. 
And, and we pray that God would come with the Holy Spirit and where our hearts are hard, he'd just rip it. He would just rip it and he would just disc it and he would go over and over and over it again so that every Sunday when we come and the word is sown upon our hearts, it's just like ready to grow. We pray that for you regularly here at the church. We see that there's a group that, that plants the seed or sows the seed. We see there's another group that waters that. Hodge says, as the farmer's work is the ordinary and appointed means of securing a harvest, so the work of the ministry is the ordinary means of conversion. We all have been called to this. We all have been called to go out and to sow this seed. Paul in Corinth had sowed the seed of the word of God. He says, Apollos came and watered it. Later on in their missionary journey, when they were in Ephesus, the roles were reversed. Apollos would plant the seed, and Paul would come and water. In our ministries here at the church, I might plant here, and Chad will come water it. Or Kevin will plant there, and Aaron will go water it. Or someone, you know, and, and you in the church, you're planting seeds. And someone else comes and waters. But something we see that is key in this verse is that it is God who gives the increase. It's God who makes the seed grow. Man, I remember from Bible school days, the story told of an African missionary who spent his whole life ministering to a tribe and not seeing one single conversion to Christ. After he died, another missionary came into the village and immediately the whole tribe yielded their lives to Christ. It's now a Christian tribe. Man, could you imagine being the guy? It's like he's plowing with like a donkey. He's like, come on, you know. There's no increases in the dry and barren land. Well, Jesus himself says in John 4, 36, that there are some who reap and they receive wages and they gather fruit for eternal life. But he who sows and he who reaps, they rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, Jesus says, and you have entered into their labors. And so this morning, I pray that God would have you lift up your eyes and see that other men and women have been laboring for the people in your workspace, for your family, for your friends. You're not alone in desiring to see them saved. God has brought others into their life as well. At different points in people's lives. God might use me to touch their heart and then you come along and get to lead them to Christ or vice versa. But always, without exception, it's always God who supplies the miracle of salvation. Some years ago, a vase was found in a mummy pit in Egypt. It had been sealed tightly and the English traveler Wilkinson found it and sent it to a British museum. There, the library unfortunately broke it and discovered inside a few grains of wheat and one or two peas, old, wrinkled, and hard as stone. And so interesting, this library planted the peas carefully under glass in the 4th of June, 1844. And at the end of 30 days, these old seeds sprang up into new life. They'd been buried probably about 3,000 years ago during the time of Moses, a long time, apparently dead, and yet still living in the dust of the tomb. And I want to encourage you, in those seeds that you've planted that just appear to be nothing, at best, they're on the, on the path. You keep praying. You keep praying that the Holy Spirit, Lord, just just sweep those seeds off over there into that cultivated soil that they might grow. It's God that causes them to grow. That's the miracle. Verse 7 tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but it's God who gives the increase. In other words, the planters and the waters, those guys are, are nothing. Yes, faithful laborers, yes, we love them, right? But in comparison... With, with God's work, it's, it's nothing. God causes the increase. An agricultural school in Iowa studied the ingredients needed to grow 100 bushels of corn on an acre of land. And here's the list. 4 million pounds of water. 
6,800 pounds of oxygen, 4,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, etc. They estimated that less than 5% of what was needed to produce a crop of corn was actually supplied by the farmer. The same is true of our spiritual harvest. You bring in the work of the Holy Spirit and you see that your role is very minor. Yes, we sow the word, but we cannot make it grow in the heart of the individual. Nothing happens eternally or spiritually unless the Holy Spirit is involved. It is God who gives the increase, we read. And if it's God that gives the increase, it's God who gets the glory. When a farmer plants a seed and waters it, he really isn't the one that makes it grow. The miracle of life does that. And 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to it that this seed is sown and then it dies, right? And then all of a sudden, it starts growing in glory after its death. It's a picture of the resurrection. It's a miracle. And it's the Lord that causes life in a dead individual. All the farmer can do is provide the right ingredients and environment for growth and trust in the miracle of life. The point of all this, the minister is nothing. So bring that man or that woman or that denomination or whatever it might be down off the throne, down off the pedestal. They are not Christ. They are not the Holy Spirit. Get your eyes on him. Rely upon him. Give him the glory. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We're all one if we're laboring. We're on the same team, working towards the same goal, serving the same boss. You know what's more incredible in this, in this verse here? It says that we are fellow workers with God. I like that. And we see that all throughout the scripture. In the gospel of Mark, we see the disciples going out preaching everywhere. And it says that the Lord was working with them. Have you ever thought of that as you're out ministering the gospel or just trying to be a light? You know, there you are in your cubicle and you've got that guy over there and the Lord's like. Do something. You need to realize that the Lord is working with you. And, and the Lord, Jesus is so great in how he encourages us in each of the gospel. He says, hey, the Holy Spirit will be there. He'll be with you. He'll bring to remembrance the things that you should say. Sometimes he'll even just say it for you. One translation says that we're working under God. Acts 15 says that when Paul and Barnabas had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they told all the things that God had done with them. Have you ever done that? Come home to tell people about your missionary trip or about your experience, and, and God was with me doing it. It was incredible. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says that we're workers together with him. Without God, we cannot but interesting, in God's plan, without us, he will not. Isn't that interesting? That's the way that he's designed it. He could have just done it all himself. God walking around with a black suit on for the rest of, you know, his, and just doing it. But no, he ascends into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit who is with us and empowers us and speaks through us. Somehow in his radical plan, he decides to use us as instruments to further his kingdom. Matthew chapter 9, it's the first book in the New Testament. It says that Jesus looks up and he sees the multitudes and he's moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the workers are few. What should we do? Well, let's just really muster up a big force and go out there and reap the harvest. That's not what he says. He says, pray. 
go to prayer and ask that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the field. I like what John's gospel says, kind of in the same place, but in chapter 4. Jesus says, don't say there's four months still until the harvest. He says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white. They are ripe for the harvest. The time is now. God's been doing a work in our church. He sent 25 or 26 of us leadership team from the church over to Boise this year. For the second year in a row, the Calvary Chapel Boise, the theme of the leadership conference was a heart for the harvest. And we come back and we dig into 1 Corinthians and we find that that's exactly what the, what the Lord wants to inject into us is a heart for the fields around us in Prineville. And if you drive around right now, what do you see? You see hay that's being harvested. Drive around this week and just look around. We're, praise God, Adam's here today. He's going to be getting on a tractor this afternoon. He just got off of it to get in here. And he's saying right now, literally right now, the fields are white for the harvest. Okay, Holy Spirit, now transpose my vision to see the people. The people that are ripe for the taking. At the Pulse, we're reading a book from the 1800s by a South African evangelist. He's actually from Britain and went down and had a radical revival that the Lord did through him in South Africa. His name's Andrew Murray, and he wrote, With Christ in the School of Prayer. We were in chapter 9 this week, and the whole theme of the chapter, this is God's sovereignty, we're just in chapter 9, and the, the, the theme of the chapter was praying for the laborers to be sent out. And so we, about 12 of us, read that chapter, and then we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed that God would stir up in our hearts a heart for the harvest and send us out into the field. And he says in his book, The supply of laborers is dependent upon their prayer. How little Christians really feel and mourn the need of laborers in the fields of the world so white to the harvest. So wonderful is the surrender of his work into the hands of the church. So dependent has the Lord made himself upon them as his body. Can I just read that again? So dependent has the Lord made himself on them as his body, through whom alone his work can be done, so real is the power which the Lord gives his people to exercise in heaven and on earth, that the number of the laborers and the measure of the harvest does actually depend upon their prayer. And then he says, solemn thought. Have you been praying? that God would send out laborers into the harvest field? Have you been praying that God would send you out into the harvest field? Pray it once and see what happens. Pray it once and see what happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, From now on, I don't look at anybody according to the flesh. I don't see just flesh and bones and a dude with the hat hair and a gal with the crazy, you know, mole on her lip or whatever. I don't see that anymore. Praise God. I see souls. I see eternities. And that strikes a terror in me. That these people will stand before the judge. And he says, therefore, I'm an ambassador for Christ and I plead with men, be reconciled to God. Then he says, you are God's field. You are God's building. And Paul switches gears now. He switches metaphors from agriculture to architecture, from husbandry to carpentry. And he says in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So now we're looking at at a construction zone. Okay, move aside the field and the tractors and the plowing and all that good stuff. And now we're talking construction zone. And he says, I am like the general contractor. I am the foreman. I'm like a wise master builder on the job site. 
an expert builder, often used to speak of craftsmen. And just as a contractor uses his skill to make a building look magnificent, so does Paul as an expert builder. Look at the blueprint that the master architect has given him to see God's design. He sees the building codes from the word of God, if you will. He uses tact and insight and wisdom. He's clever with the design. He's got vision with the design. And he uses expertise on how to build up an individual or individuals in Christ. And he talks here, excuse me, Uh he talks here about the most important and primary part of a building, its foundation. And so Paul comes in like a concrete foreman and he lays the concrete, he lays the foundation smartly so that the builders can come in and build just as prudently, just as wisely And he says as the concrete foreman here in verse 11, Hey, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid. The foundation has a name. It's Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the head of the church. Doctrine concerning Christ is the fundamental doctrine of the gospel. The work of the ministry is to build up the church on the foundation that God has laid in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There can be zero, no, not a nilch in any other way that you can say zero. There's no other ground that you can build the church. There's no other ground of confidence for our justification from our sins, for our sanctification from the world and our salvation. It's upon Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Isaiah 28, 16, the Lord says, Hey, I'm laying in Zion on that big mount in Israel, a stone as a foundation. That stone came. His name is Jesus. He's a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. He's a sure foundation. Ephesians says in chapter 2, verse 20, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, the anchoring point, the standard. He's the foundation of the foundation. Jesus told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. What rock? You go back like a verse or two and Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the foundation, Peter. I love Luke 6, 47 through 49, where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house, it couldn't shake it because it was founded on the rock. But he who heard the word of God and did nothing, he's like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, built it on the sand. And the stream came and beat against it vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. If you've ever been to Stanford University, there's a a quadrangle there. It's a beautiful structure near San Francisco. Well, there stood, rather, a magnificent memorial arch built so largely and so solidly and so splendidly, it seemed it would never fall. It would last forever. Then one of those San Fran earthquakes came. It collapsed to its ruin. And there its foundation was exposed. And guess what was found? The builder had put in chips and rubble. If anyone builds on this foundation, verse 12 says, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. You might notice there's a list of building material here in verse 12. And it goes from most expensive to least expensive. And it goes from least flammable to most flammable. 
builders upon the foundation. They're pastors, they're ministers, they're teachers, and they're you. You can build on your own foundation. And you want to make sure that the building products that you use are quality. That they're Christ-centered. That they're for His glory. That they're Spirit-empowered. That they're Bible-centered, grace-centered, gospel-centered, truth-centered. Build upon others with that. Build upon yourself with that. Upon that foundation of Christ. What's poor building material? What's wood? What's hay? What's straw? Material that is works-based. Just try harder. Just do a little better this time, okay? Things that are self-centered. Things that are humanistic or human wisdom at center. Christian ethics or even moral principles can become that. Things that are self-powered. Things that are error are wood, hay, and straw. Leon Morris says it's all too possible for astonishing varieties to make their appearance. To mix human wisdom with God's wisdom in this work. As as the apostle will say later on, using alternate layers of straw and marble in the building of the temple. Don't build with a different gospel. Don't continue your Christian walk with a different gospel. A self-based gospel is no gospel at all. John Owen, a, a Puritan preacher, said, Trying to do it all from self-strength, carried on by ways of self-invention, unto the end of self-righteousness, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Oh, it seems good, but it's unbiblical and counter-gospel. Don't build your building anchored to a ministry or a social cause or a pet doctrine or some spiritual phenomena or political objective or a style of worship or an exciting personality. If you do that, you're building on a shaky foundation. If you want the ministry to last, look at the foundation. Is it built upon Christ? Verse 13, each one's work will eventually become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. Remember I was saying some of those things get more and more flammable. Well, one day this thing's gonna have its test. The fire will test each one's work of which sort it is. The day will declare it, Paul says, to see which person used quality building materials on others as well as themselves. What is this day? That Paul speaks of. It's the day of judgment. It's called the Bema seat judgment in the scriptures. Or the judgment seat of Christ. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. That all Christians will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now this judgment seat. It's different than another judgment seat. That we read of in Revelation chapter 20. That's called the great white throne judgment. And we're going to read about it in a second. And it's essentially the judgment where God sends unbelievers to hell. But that's not the judgment that we're reading about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here in chapter 3, we're reading of the Bema seat judgment. And it is much like in the Olympic Games where people are judged on their performance. And they're given rewards and encouragement on their performance. We're not saved by these performances. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that we're going to appear before this rewards judgment time. And we're going to receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is the fire that's being spoken of here in a Christian's life. The impurities being burned away. In one sense, Matthew 12, 36 is true. I say to you, for every idle word that a man will speak, He'll give account for it on the day of judgment. It'll be revealed by fire. The fire will test. Peter tells us that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, it'll be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 3.14, it says, If anyone's work which he's built on endures, he'll receive a reward. Again, this is the rewards judgment, the Bema Seat judgment. There's a reward for those who build with quality material, long-lasting, fire-safe material. You want to note here that the work and the labor is judged. Not the scope or sphere, how popular somebody was in their ministry but rather the labor, the diligence. Morris says some work in a sloven fashion, content to put into it that which costs him little or nothing. Those that work in a slovenly fashion will find it's burnt away on that day. Verse 15 says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer a loss. Remember, we're not talking about the day of, we're not talking about the great white throne judgment where someone's sent to hell It doesn't say here, if his work is burned, straight to hell with you. No, it says if his work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will still be saved. Why? Because this is an individual that still had a foundation of Christ. He just built upon it with with temporal things. He'll be saved, yet so as through fire. The fire of God's glory, God's spirit will burn away all the chaff. All the impurities will be revealed and burnt off. The individual will still be saved, but it'll be as if they've just survived a fire in their building. They'll come into the throne room of God, and as one man always said, smelling like smoke. Two kinds of judgments. The Bema Seat judgment, this rewards judgment that we read of. And then the great white throne judgment. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus says that the Son of Man will come. This is, the, this is at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, where the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he'll reward to each one according to his works. Romans 2.16 says, In that day God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, in that day, Revelation 20, and I want you all to flip over to this reference. This is, this is just the, the real description, the deep description of this great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11. John the Revelator is given a vision of this day. This is a day of judgment for people who are not in Christ. People who have not put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That they might be washed from their sins and cleansed from their sins and justified in Christ Jesus. Just as if they'd never sinned before. No, this is a judgment for those that rejected the gospel. Those that wouldn't surrender their life to Christ. But followed after their own gods. And we see here their judge. It says, I saw a great white throne, Revelation 20, 11, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now we know as Christians... That we haven't been saved by our works. We've been saved by Jesus' works. His perfection by faith has been placed into our account. So that we can stand before God and when God looks at us, He sees the beauty of His Son and the obedience of His Son. But there are those their whole life who essentially said, No, I can make it on my own. I'm a good person. And I'll just answer for myself on that day. And so here they are. And we read that books are open. What are these books? Well, we know that one of them is called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life. We know there are names written in that book. And the beautiful thing is if you're a Christian, today your name is written in that book. 
But we see other books, and most believe those other books are books of the law, the law of God that, that shows, hey, this is perfection. Do it. And we know from the, the meta-narrative of the scripture that no one could ever do it, so Jesus came and did it for us. But no, there are those that, I'm going to do it on my own. Okay, well, let's put you before the righteous judge and let's say, here's the law, and then another book is open, and some believe that's actually kind of a, an account, a documentary of your life. And now let's measure here, okay? We've got the perfect standards of a holy, perfect, sinless God, and then we got what you've done with your life. And James says that if any man kept the law but stumbled at just one point, he is guilty of breaking the whole thing. So, you want to be judged before the Lord based upon your works? You'll have that day. And it will not go well for you. And in the end, what we see is it all comes down to this book. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and anyone who's not found there is cast into the lake of fire. What we read in the scripture, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's torment forever and ever. Two different types of judgments. A rewards judgment for those that serve the Lord, are about his business, are about his glory, have humbled themselves before God and said, I can't make it on my own. I've fallen short. I've messed up. I've sinned. I've blown it. Jesus, let your goodness be put upon me. It's the day that you're saved is when that happens. And for you today, that can be you. Just recognize, I've blown it, I can't do it. And just say right now in your heart, Lord Jesus, let your perfection be put upon me. And can you hear the, the pen put to paper in heaven and your name being written down in the Lamb's book of life? But you know, I believe there are some in this room today that's ridiculous to you. There's no way I'm going to humble myself before God. There's no way I'm going to pray something like that. I'm just going to start over today and I'm really going to do it well. You've already blown it. The Bible says if you've even lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery, you're an adulterer, you can't go to heaven. If you've put things before God in your life, then you're an idol, idol worshiper or an idol worshiper. And you've, you're, you're in paganism, in a sense. You've blown it. But enter in Jesus Christ today. Let his perfection be placed in your account. We're going to have the worship team come up this morning. And we want to just respond to the scripture. We want to respond to the word of God. And you can just set your Bibles aside now. And we have been shown today our sin, how quickly we elevate men, ministries, denominations, putting men before Christ. And we want to repent of that today. We want to fix our gaze on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. We want to lift his name high. We want to repent of making men into gods. This morning, Jesus, we fix our gaze upon you, the head of the church, the foundation. Lord, those who are Christians in this place, they've been called to ministry. Maybe not full time, maybe not paid staff, but Lord, you've saved them that they might go into the world, go into their homes, go into their classrooms, go into their job sites go into their community and be a light that they might open their mouths and make known the mystery of the gospel. And Lord, we want to just set ourselves afresh this morning to building with gold and silver and precious stones. We want to be Christ-centered. We want to be gospel-focused. We lay aside our humanistic ideas, even our Christian morality that we get aside from scripture, our pet doctrines. 
And Lord, we just come to your word and we come to truth. We come to your power. And we take steps away from false religion, self-righteousness, self-motivation, self-help. And we come to you who's done it all. Just afresh, if you're a Christian here this morning, let's just cast down self. Let's cast down self-motivation, self-strength, self-righteousness. And let's turn to Jesus and let's ask for him to give us vision again, to be wise master builders. We'd follow our architect's blueprint. We'd be the sowers in the field casting seed. Those of you that came through those doors this morning, not a Christian, man, prayer has gone for you that your heart would be soft to receive this morning, that the seed might land on good soil, that you might receive that seed and grow now and produce fruit for Christ. Love for God, love for people, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. God wants to work those things in you by his power, even today. Just respond to him. And maybe you already have in the, in the sermon today. Maybe you have just responded and just received Christ's perfection. The language in the Bible that you've probably heard before is that you would be born again. Just the 3rd of July, I got to lead my little six-year-old boy. He was asking questions in the car, and I, I just said, Russell, do you want to be born again? Yeah, I want to be born again. I want to have a new heart, Dad. I want God to take out my old heart of sin, and it's just rocky hard. I've explained this all to him, and I want, he said it though, and I want Jesus to put in me a heart that is flesh, and it beats, and it can know God and be known by God. Just two weeks ago, my little six-year-old boy, just, just without a doubt, he just he says, now he declares it to our neighbors, I'm born again. And I believe God has brought you to this place this morning to be born again to be made new, a fresh start. If any man is found in Christ this morning, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and all things have been made new. Just receive that today. The best way you know how, like a little kid, like a little three-year-old, his first Christmas that he's actually understanding that presents are being passed out. And he just says, yes, I want that. You say that this morning. Yes, Jesus, I want that. I want to be saved. If that's you this morning, just with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to have the elders just have their eyes open with me so that we can come and, and meet you. But if that's you this morning, I want you to just lift up your hand where you're at. You know that God has brought you to this place that you might be born again that you might have that foundation built this morning, who is Jesus. And then starting now, you can begin to build on it with gold and silver and precious stones and others can begin to build on your foundation. Is that you today for the first time? <clears throat> for the first time, you want Jesus. Anybody at all? No embarrassment here. You know, Jesus, he hung for six hours on the cross, naked, at eye level, in a street. And he thought of you. He thought of how his blood would pay for your sins. Would you respond and be courageous enough to say, Lord, you did it for me. And here I am receiving the gift of eternal life. Is there anybody at all this morning? Lord sees you. Praise God. Anybody else? 
Just as you lift up your hand, you can just know that, man, the Lord is doing a work in your heart and, and just allow him to minister to you that, yeah, that old stony heart of selfishness and rebellion and sin. He's taking that away and he's putting in that new heart that can know him and hear from him and want to follow him now and want to read the word and want to be in a church with other Christians. And he's doing that right now. And, and you can rejoice in that. The Bible says that the angels are rejoicing. You rejoice too. Anybody else, you want that work done in your life. I'm not asking if you've gone to church a lot. Hey, if you've gone to church a lot, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you have gone to church, then no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you this, and you know in your heart, have you been born again? You will not enter the kingdom unless you've been born again. And the Lord saw your hand raised too, ma'am. Praise God, we rejoice with you. Just let God just do a transforming work in your heart right now. Just sense him changing you. Is there anybody else? You would be numbered with these women today as born again. A new heart, a fresh start. Well, you don't have to raise your hand to be saved. And so I'm gonna just pray out. And if you just know that that's you, I praise God if you'd pray along with me and just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I've come here this morning by your grace that you had a message for me to hear. And Lord, this morning, I just clear the path for you to lay the foundation. I get out of the way for the, the foundation of Jesus to be built in my life. And it's being set right now, God, and I thank you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would help me to build on this foundation, that you would help my pastor and, and just the people in my church to help build with gold and silver and precious stones. And, Lord, right now, it's just I've responded to you and I've heard your call and I said, that's me. Lord, let my seed, let this seed, let my heart be that cultivated earth that'll grow and produce a hundredfold fruit for you. And Lord Jesus, right now, I can just hear the pen put to pad in the book of life. Write my name. Write my name. And help me to live a life now worthy of your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.